0: I guess if there's any kids left in here that didn't go to Children's Church, you can go now. Um, start your stretching. Some of you, some of you parents of, of teens, start your stretching. Go ahead. I'll, I, I will put up with it, and I will gladly own the snow that's outside because, yes, for two weeks I've had Christmas music in my office going because I'm not a Scrooge. <laughs> like other people that are around this office from time to time, named Fitzpatrick. Um, Luke chapter 16 this morning, Luke chapter 16. So, we, uh, we open God's word and we come to the next chapter in our study of the book of Luke. And as I begin this morning, I just want to address with you what I think is one of the great poisons in the American church, and I think I can do that based on this text here. One of the greatest threats to the modern Western church is what is known as the prosperity gospel, or you may know it as the health and wealth gospel. It's the belief that because you're a believer a follower of Jesus, that God wants you to be healthy and he absolutely has said that because you are his child, you will be healthy and you will be rich. Look around this room this morning at all the broken, sick people. How many of you came in here in a Bentley this morning? Jimmy, you're the exception. (laughs) The belief is, is that because you love Jesus, you should never experience want or need. And I would submit to you that the world that we live in is a fallen, sinful, evil place. And because we're trying to follow Jesus in this world, we're going to experience want and need. We're going to. The Scriptures are twisted out of context, promises are given, and quite honestly, lives are ruined by this false gospel. Lives are ruined by this false gospel. If you have at all been a student of the Word of God, if you have been here while, while we have preached the Word week after week, once you will you'll, you'll come to this realization that the Scriptures don't paint a rosy picture for believers in this life, do they? They just don't. And anyone who would tell you that they do is lying to you. They couch their language in words like, seeking God's favor, or getting victory over the enemy of debt, or other good-sounding phrases. Interestingly enough, A brief surveyors of the purveyors of this heresy would indicate that they are some of the wealthiest Christians in the world. Do the the money trail there, folks. The call is to be like them and not to be like Christ. And any time a man or a woman would stand in front of you and say, live your life to be like me, that should be a huge red flag. Do it my way and you'll be like me. But I want to be clear this morning. Wealth is not the issue. If you're here this morning and you are set financially, God bless you. That doesn't mean that you're in sin. If you're here this morning and you're healthy because you don't drink six Mountain Dews a day like me, great. God bless you. <laughs> being, being financially set, being healthy is not the problem here. The problem, is, the problem with prosperity theology is this, that it doesn't line up with Christ's gospel. That's the problem with it. In Jesus' day, quite honestly, there was great profit in being a religious leader. It's not unlike the time that we live in today, when many self-professed Christian leaders are doing quite well by greedily taking from those who would sacrificially give to them. The Bible has a lot to say about money. And because we've been following the book of Luke through verse by verse, we come to a text today that deals with money in Luke chapter 16. In fact, the next two parables that that Jesus is going to tell in the beginning of chapter 16 and then in down in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, they deal with wealth and money. They deal with wealth and money. And in fact, if you're a student of Jesus, you understand this. Of the 40 parables, close to 40 parables that he gave us, over a third of them deal with money. Jesus had a lot to say about money. Why? Because in Jesus' own words, money is a great revealer of our hearts. Your attitude, the way you think about money, the way you're thinking about money right now, if you are sitting here right now this morning and cringing, oh my goodness, he is going to preach against how I use my money. If you're cringing about that, that ought to tell you you love your money a little too much. The way you acquire your money, the way you spend your money, the way you invest your money, the way you waste your money, the way you borrow your money, The way that you leverage your money, it says a lot, not just about the shrewdness of how you do business, but it says even more about what's going on in your heart. And let me be clear here this morning, because maybe there's some of us who are sitting here who are like, man, I'm just struggling to pay my bills. This message isn't about me. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Your attitude about money reveals your heart. Your attitude about money reveals your heart. If you look with me at Luke chapter 16, the very first phrase in verse 1, Jesus makes a turn here. Who's he now addressing? It says, He said also to his disciples. In chapter 15, who had he been addressing, church? We've been, we just finished up chapter 15. He'd been dealing with religious leaders, the Pharisees, the religious elite, those who were self-righteous, those who were trusting in their own righteousness. And now he turns from that, and, he, and it, almost like he turns his back on those people, and he looks directly at his followers. And you might expect him to say something like, but you guys aren't like these guys. You guys are doing great. No, he hits them right in the heart. He deals with them about money. He's going to use a really unusual parable to teach them and to instruct us about how we view money and wealth and possessions. He's going to use a story that you and I probably wouldn't use. He's going to to use it in such a way to illustrate a spiritual point here. And so this morning, I want you to really hone in on Jesus' words. We're going to read the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 16 this morning. And I want you to catch as I'm reading this the twist that he gives with this parable and how Jesus uses somebody who is an evil guy, an evil guy, to, to make a spiritual application here. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." That's a nice way of saying, you're fired. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since the master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches?" And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray this morning. Father, nothing seems to get our attention like money and issues with money. Nothing seems to bring us down than when we get the unexpected bill in the mail. Nothing seems to perk us up than when we get an unexpected windfall of money or a raise or a promotion. And so this morning, I ask, Father, that you would, through the Word and Spirit, through your convicting presence in this room, reveal our blind spots. Reveal our blind spots when it comes to wealth and money and possessions. And that you wouldn't just reveal it, but that you would change our heart attitudes toward it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a really simple message because Jesus actually gives us the application. Jesus clearly makes the application for us here. He's going to make three points of application at the end. But I want us to understand the parable. I want us to understand the the immensity of, of what Jesus is talking about here. And so on the heels of the the parable of the prodigal son in chapter 15, which Paul preached for us last week, on the heels of that, we have the parable of a dishonest manager, okay? Literally, he was a prodigal manager, okay? That's the tie here that keeps us going here. He's a prodigal manager. I hope you understand what the word prodigal means. Prodigal means nothing more than someone who wastes his possessions, Someone who is who is very lavish in his spending, someone who just takes his wealth and just wastes it, just like the prodigal son did last week in Luke chapter 15. It's the same word in verse one that we have wasting his possessions that we have Jesus using back in chapter 15 and verse 13, where it says that, that the young son went and squandered his property in reckless living. Okay? So, so, this is what this, is what this dishonest, dishonest manager is doing. He is squandering his owner's wealth. He's just taking it and spending it like it's his own, and he is spending it on whatever he wants. He's using his, his owner's money to, to buy himself happiness. The manager is, is a, this man's what we would call today maybe his administrator, maybe he's his business partner or his business manager. This guy that he works for is so wealthy, imagine this, none of us probably can relate to this, but he is so wealthy that he has a guy who works under him, who knows everything about his finances, and all he has to say to that guy is, hey, would you make sure that this guy gets paid? And, and how much money do we have in the bank? Are we good this month? And, and can you imagine living life like that? I can't relate. This guy does not know the day-to-day operations because he's so wealthy, okay? Think about it this way just a little bit south of here in New Albany, there's a guy named Wexner. Ever heard of him? I'm guessing he doesn't know what goes on in each one of his individual stores. Every once in a while, he probably talks to his, his, his business manager and he's like, give me an accounting of what's going on. And basically what he wants to know is, how much money am I making? And are you doing a good job with it? Okay? So, so there's a lot of responsibility that's been put in this manager or this steward's hands. He basically has the say of what happens with this guy's money. It's a pretty powerful position, isn't it? Pretty important position. You better get this right, but it's also a pretty tempting position, isn't it? Because there's not much accountability here, and now we find out in verse 1, that there were charges brought against this guy. Someone comes and reports to the owner, this wealthy man, and says, Hey, your business manager over here, he is ripping you off like you can't believe. And maybe he can produce proof of it. Maybe he can show him. And, and, and so he demonstrates to it. And, and if you're that guy, if you're the guy with all that money, and you find out that the guy that you have trusted has betrayed you, what are you going to do? you really want to go off with his head, right? But he's, he's going to jail, right? And he's being fired, and he's going to repay you back, and all these things you're thinking about. And so in verse 2, he calls and brings him in, and he says, what is this that I hear about you? But if you and I were telling this story, and we were firing the guy, when would we make the firing, when would we make it uh, effective? Okay, if you've got a guy who's ripping you off, he has the keys to your kingdom, how soon do you want those keys back? Right now, right? In Jesus' story, does he do that? No. No, he just says, hey, we don't know how much time he gives him, but he says, you need to give me an account of what you're doing, okay? You need to bring it back to me, and at that point, I'll have you to turn in your keys and all this stuff, right? He says, you can no longer be my manager. And so... Now we have this manager in verse three in a moment of very poignant, painful honesty. Do you see it there in verse three? He he comes to this crushing realization. I have spent all my life living off the back of my owner here and and robbing from him, and there are two things that I won't do. You see what they are? I'm not going to do manual labor, and I'm not going to beg that sounds like the American way, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. I, I'm not going to do manual labor and I'm not going to beg. I'm too proud to beg and, and I'm too soft to work hard, right? So what's he going to do? What does a dishonest man always turn to? What does a dishonest man do when he needs to make money? He's going he's to make one last big play with the owner's money here. He's going to make one last big play. Look at verse 4. He's like, aha. And make no mistake, this is what dishonest people do. They don't just stop being dishonest whenever they're caught, right? It's like, here's what I'm going to do. When when I'm removed from management, I'm going to set this up in such a way so so that the people that I have been going to to collect the money from, they are going to love me whenever this is all done, and they're going to want to do something nice for me. And so here's what he does. Verse 5. He he brings in the people who owe his master money. okay. And these people owe some serious money here. We're going to talk about that. He's going to take advantage of the master one last time, and what he's going to do is he's going to settle his debts for less. And in doing so, he's not putting the money in his pocket, but what he's doing is he's buying favor now. He's buying favor. Imagine you owe... I don't know. You, you owe on your car, OK? And let's say that you have a really nice car, and you still owe, I don't know, maybe 35,000 dollars on your car. Imagine the manager from the, from the auto dealership calling you and saying to you, "Hey, have I got a deal for you today, Scarberry? If you will come sign the papers, I'm going to reduce your debt from 35 down to 17. How many of you would think that'd be worth the drive to go sign those papers? Yeah. That's basically what this guy is doing. And so, verse five, he brings in the debtors one by one. And he says to the first, How much do you owe my master? How much, how much are you on the hook for? Well, he knows how much he's on the hook for because he's keeping the records, right? And he's cooking the books, too. He knows how much he's owed. So, verse six, he says, I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, let's understand what that means here in today's wages 100 measures of oil. So 100 measures, this would be of olive oil. Let me just make it simple for us. It's worth close to three years' salary. Three years' salary, okay? So let's just pick a number, just an an easy number here. Let's pick, I don't know, $60,000. Three years, this is worth $180,000. $180,000 this is worth to this guy. He owes to this guy. Now who wouldn't like to get 180,000 cut down to 90 with just writing with a pen right So he says look at verse 6 take your bill sit down quickly and write 50 Basically what he says is you you now your debts cut in half and here's the thing that you have to understand there's nothing that the owner the wealthy man can do about this because this guy is still acting in his name so once he says this, once it gets written down, it, this is what is going to hold up in a court of law. This guy authorized this. He told me that I only owe half of what I owe. And, he, and we signed off on it. Verse 7, then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Let me help you understand what a hundred measures of wheat would equate to. That would be eight to ten years of salary. Eight to ten years of salary and he says, okay, let's cut it by 20%. Now, would that make you happy if somebody cut your debt that would be 8 to 10 years of your salary by 20%? If you have a 10-year mortgage on your house, and you're really aggressive about paying it off, how many of you would like to have 20% taken off today? Right? That, that's the kind of money we're talking about here. So, obviously... This guy is going to sign off on that too. What's interesting is, just like last week when Paul pointed out the unexpected twist in the parable of, of the prodigal son, there, there's a, at this point, if the disciples are listening to this, as you're listening to this, what are you expecting Jesus' next words to be? We are going to crush that steward right now, right? Right? Jesus is just absolutely going to unload on this steward and and call him out for all his dishonesty. And Jesus is going to come in and set the story right by making the story all work out so that this guy has to go to debtor's prison and he has to pay off all these people and do all this stuff, right? It's what we're kind of expecting, right? It's like a bad TV western where the guys in the white hats always win, right? Except what does Jesus do with this parable? Look at verse 8. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For his shrewdness. That word shrewdness there is an interesting word. That word means that he is actually commending him for acting wisely and acting with insight. And here's what here's what the owner is saying to his dishonest manager. Bob, that was really smart. I never thought that you could do something like that. Wish I'd have taken the keys from you last week. Right? It's like, that was really smart. That was insightful. I commend you for that, but you're still fired. And what Jesus is pointing out for us is, is that this manager who had charge of all these resources did something really wise to benefit himself. He used the master's wealth to benefit himself. And then Jesus gives us the point of the parable in the second half of verse 8. I want you to see the point of this parable, because if you don't get the point of this parable, you're not going to get the application of the parable. Look at the second half of verse 8. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Okay, so we got to identify who we're talking about here. Who are the sons of this world? These are the unbelieving, unregenerate people who live out in the world. You work with them. You go to the store with them. You rub shoulders with them at the gas station. You, you as children of light, as those who are believers, every day we are out in the world with the children of this world, right? And here's what he says about them. The people of this world are better at securing their wealth in this life than you and I are at in securing our eternal reward. Let me say that again. Let me say that again, that that the average person in the world is better at securing wealth in this life than the followers of Jesus are in securing eternal reward. And make no mistake, Jesus is telling us we are here to secure eternal reward. Now, I know that that sounds a little bit fishy to us, because we're supposed to be believers and just suffer for Jesus, and we're not supposed to get a reward, right? No. Jesus clearly is telling us that, that, that there is a reward to be gained here. And, and, and just the same way that this dishonest manager misused his owner's wealth to reward himself, to get benefit for himself, there is an eternal spiritual benefit that should, we should all be working toward here. Now, remind ourselves here, who's the audience? It's followers of Jesus, right? It's disciples. It's believers, okay? Um, Jesus is not saying that we're working for salvation here. What he's saying is we're working for eternal reward, those of us who have already been gifted with salvation by faith through grace. We're working towards eternal reward here. And I have to ask myself, why is Jesus making this point with us? Why is he saying that, that people do a better job? And think about the ways that people go about securing wealth in this life, I mean, people will work themselves to the bones. They'll they'll work two and three jobs. They, They will live such Spartan lifestyles that they basically have nothing and they save all their wealth. People will do a lot to make money, won't they? And what Jesus is saying is, most of my followers, you won't work that hard. You won't work that hard. And I have to ask myself, why is that? And I think of a couple reasons here, and I want you to think with me about this. Why, why are we not so concerned about eternal reward? Well, the first thing that came to mind is this, because you and I, because we live in this world, we tend to only focus on the here and the now. And what is the here and the now all about? Accumulating wealth in which life? This life. Okay? I mean, what's more exciting to talk about, discipling somebody or buying a new boat or a new car? Most of us get really excited about the new thing, right? We get focused on the here and the now and we don't think about eternity. Eternity is something that's way out there in the future that I'm not thinking about. And I want to just tell you and I want to be a clarion call to you this morning. Wake up, eternity may just be a second away. Eternity is closer than you and I realize. Secondly, I think Jesus has to bring this up because we really have rotten investment strategies. We have rotten investment strategies. It's getting to the point now where you can't even watch a good football game without all these stupid investment ads on there, right? Okay? Okay. And every investment ad does this. It's like, okay, so you invest with us because we have less fees and we do this, we do this, we do this. And, and we, we spend so much time. Some of you, I know some of you are, are really shrewd with your money and you would research all these different investment places and stuff to do this. But how often do we really think about our spiritual investment strategy? We don't have the right investment strategies. And Jesus is going to help us with that. He's going to give us three big principles here to help us with our investment strategy. He's he's going to give us principles that relate to how we use and handle the world's wealth for heavenly gain. Did you know that you can use the world's wealth for heavenly gain? That kind of sounds greasy and dishonest. It makes me sound like a used car salesman this morning, But, but it's really true. God intended for us to use the world's wealth to build eternal reward. Okay? Now, that should change the way that we think about money. Money is just a thing, and it's a temporary thing. i got news for you. It's all going to burn up in the end when the earth burns up. But there are some things that are not going to burn up. And so Jesus now is going to give us the three applications beginning here in verse 9. He's going to give us the three applications, if you will. This is, this is the, the eternal investment strategy that Jesus wants us to espouse. Principle number one is in verse 9. Let me read it. And I tell you, okay, when Jesus starts it that way, I tell you, he's, he's saying to his disciples, hey, pay attention here. I'm about to say something pretty profound. Okay? I'm going to tell you something really important here. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. Isn't that what the the unrighteous manager did? He made friends by using his master's wealth, right? Isn't that what he did? He, he made friends so that whenever he lost his job, this guy that he forgave, you know, like a year and a half's worth of, of his salary, he forgave that debt. That guy's going to be like, hey, hey, buddy, uh, remember me? I'm the guy who, who helped you save all that money. Can you at least give me a job or give me a place to stay? Jesus is saying here, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that, it, that when it fails... Mark that down, when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails. I have no idea who the wealthiest person in this room is, and I don't need to know. I don't need to know how much you have in your IRA, in your investment account, but here's what I do know about it, it's going to fail. The best car that somebody owns, guess what, one day it's going to fail fail the biggest best house in the church family one day it's going to fail so he says so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings what is jesus saying here in the same way that the manager used his master's wealth to, to make friends, we're to use the resources that God gives you and gives us to make friends that will one day be with us in eternity. What's, how do you make friends that will be with you in eternity? How do you do that? <laughs> well, you evangelize them so that they come to Christ, right? Right? That, that's how you make friends who will be with you in eternity. That, that's how you build up eternal reward. And, and let's understand this. The, the perspective is this, that world, worldly wealth is a temporary thing, and it's only used to satisfy us in this life. And what Jesus is saying is we can take worldly wealth, and we can leverage it and use it for, to bring eternal reward. There's a couple things we have to understand here. I know this sounds very un-American, allow me to be un-American for a a second. The wealth that you supposedly made for yourself, that you earned for yourself, that you worked hard for, self-made men and women in this room, that, that you claim to be your wealth, it's not yours. It's not your wealth. It never was your wealth. Whose wealth is it? That's the good Sunday school answer, but whose wealth is it, church? Anything that you received first came through the hands of what? Who? Almighty God. It never was yours. And he's given each of us some of his wealth, and he's asking for us to invest it for eternal reward. God doesn't care what interest rate you negotiated on your mortgage. He really doesn't care. He doesn't care that you got butter two for one at Kroger last week. You know what God cares about? You know what God cares about? Whether you're investing in the kingdom. That's what He cares about. You see, the greatest use of your wealth, the greatest use of your wealth, the greatest use of my wealth is wealth that's invested for the sake of the kingdom. This isn't just giving it an offering. Please don't think you're hearing me say this morning, Pastor Dan is just trying to get the offering plate full. No, no, no. Because it's more than just what you have in your wallet. Your wealth is far more than that. It's your house. It's your car. It's your clothing. It's all this stuff. God wants you to use all of your money and possessions for the sake of the kingdom. Like, I just use my car to taxi my kids' places, right? No, It's to be used for the sake of the kingdom. My house isn't just the place where I come and I hide out from the rest of the world. My house is a tool to be used, to be invested for the sake of the kingdom of God. When was the last time you drove down your driveway or pulled up to your apartment and said, this isn't mine, this belongs to God, and how am I using it for the sake of His kingdom? Normally, we pull up to our houses and we're like, man, that paint's peeling. What are the neighbors going to think? There's weeds in my flower bed. Or did you pull up to your house and say, how can I use this to, to reach out to others? So principle number one is this, make use of the master's wealth, not for yourself, but for his kingdom, because here's the thing. The stuff that you invest in here on this earth, you're not going to keep for eternity. But those souls that you you have a part in sending ahead, they will be with you forever in the kingdom. Would you say that's a pretty good return on investment? Secondly, secondly, verses 10 through 12. The second investment strategy that Jesus gives is faithfulness, is faithfulness. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Think about the, the unrighteous manager here. Do you think that that he just began with, with multi-million dollar or multi-thousand dollar swindles against his boss, or did it start small? It started small, didn't it? And when he figured out that he could do it on a small scale, and he figured out that his manager wasn't catching him doing it in a small way, you get emboldened to do a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and the next thing you know, you are just robbing him of thousands of dollars. And Jesus is saying here, one who is faithful in a very little is faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a little is, is dishonest in much. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Do you catch what Jesus is saying there in verse 11? Jesus says this, if you're not unfaithful in, with unrighteous wealth, the things of this world, if you're not faithful with that, he's not going to entrust to those who are not faithful with that stuff true spiritual wealth. That's a scary thought right there if you and I can't be faithful with our money, God's not giving to us true spiritual riches then. So in other words, what I do with my money is pretty important then, isn't it? Because, because then if I'm not faithful with what, with what God has given me, then, then I'm not going to get any of these spiritual riches that, that are all throughout the scripture that, that God promises me here. But there's a measure of comfort here. Look at verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? There's a measure of comfort here in this, that God's evaluation of our stewardship isn't like how our world evaluates stewardship and investing, okay? What would you think if I told you about this retirement account that you can invest in and and it will give you a half a percent gain every year? How many are going to sign up for that? Let's do it what if I told you that same investment account would give you 25% every year? How many of you are going for it? You're going for it, right? Because we evaluate based on return, right? And the bigger our return, the better. What does God say he evaluates us on? He doesn't evaluate us on return and investment. What does he evaluate us on? One word, faithfulness. Faithfulness. My wife and I have some friends who are, were missionaries in Italy, and Frank and Sherry took their two young children to Italy as missionaries, and they were going to start a church. They were on that field, I think, for 30 years. You know how many churches they started? One. You know what year that that church finally got started in their years of ministry there? Year 20, I dare say I'd have given up after like 5, 7, 10, 15. And Frank probably can count on his fingers and his toes the number of Italian believers that, that are going to be a part of the kingdom because of his 30 years there. But I guarantee you that our Heavenly Father looks down and says, those people were really faithful those people were really faithful. And we sit back here in the U.S., and we sit in our missions committee or our mobilization or whatever, the M word we're going to use, and we're like, well, I don't know if that's a good use of our money. Uh, We haven't seen many people get saved over there. And we measure everything by numbers, don't we? And God says what? Faithfulness. 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 Are you sticking with it? Are you staying by the stuff? Are you still preaching the word? I don't care how many people are coming to your church, Frank. Are you, still, are you still sharing the same gospel? And I want to tell you, Frank walked door to door all over that little town that he was at there in Italy. And he himself is a native Italian with an Italian name. And he barely got a hearing at all. But he kept doing it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And there are souls that you and I will get to meet on the streets of heaven, Italian brothers and sisters who came to know Jesus Christ because they were faithful there for 30 years. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Faithfulness. How do you, how do you teach and model faithfulness to your kids? I was thinking about this. The the thing to do today is to complain about how terrible kids are, right? You know why kids are terrible? Because their parents are terrible, right? They're just a reflection of who who we are and how we've raised them. And you want to know what kids are missing especially Christian kids that are raised in Christian families, is this faithful example of parents who are just faithful, even during the really tough times. Faithfulness isn't measured in weeks or months. It's measured in decades, isn't it? You teach your kids to give to the Lord now. You teach to, not just to put a little quarter in the offering plate. You teach your kids to give the Lord their time, their talent, and their treasure. You teach them when they're young so that when they're your age, they're not as unfaithful as you and I are right now. Yeah, I did just say that. Why is it that we're always looking for people to serve in ministries? Because we don't see the value in it. We don't see the eternal reward in it. Principle number three. So principle number one is leverage the world's wealth for eternal reward. Principle number two is be faithful with it. And principle number three is this. You can't be divided in your loyalties. You can't be divided in your loyalties. When it comes to wealth and money, it's one or the other. It's either wealth and money or it's serving the Lord. Do you see it there in verse 13? No servant can serve two masters. It's just, it's self-evident, is it not? Have you ever worked in a job where you had two bosses? You ever been in that situation? It happens sometimes. In construction, it happens a lot. You have a foreman who tells you what to do, and then you have a general contractor who comes on the job and says, no, do it this way. Like, what am I supposed to do? He says this way, you say this way. You can't make them both happy, can you? It's true in life as well. You cannot serve God, and you cannot serve your own selfish wants with money. They're going to knock heads every time. They're going to knock heads every time. What did Jesus say? You're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he just clearly, clearly says to his disciples. Now think about it. Think about his disciples. Think about some of these guys. You got Matthew, who was a tax collector. Was he used to a pretty nice lifestyle? You got James and John, who are blue blood Galilean fishermen whose daddy supplies the fish that that are used down at the temple. Do you suppose they knew what wealth was? You've got, you got Peter and Andrew who are a part of that, of that conglomeration of fishing companies there, and, and they're, used to, they're used to making some pretty good coin doing some fishing. you got some people here who, who they, as disciples, we think about, oh, these were just poor paupers. No, these were guys who were making some serious money. And here's what Jesus says. You can't, you can't do both here. Now, Jesus isn't saying you have to take a vow of poverty. That's not what he's saying here. Don't don't read this incorrectly here. Jesus is not saying you have to just turn your back on wealth. You're going to live in rags. You're going to drive a beat-up 1984 Chevy Monte Carlo the rest of your life. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can't have a home. He's not saying that that you can't buy Christmas presents for your kids. Okay? Okay? Kids, I did not tell your parents to cancel Christmas. They did it on their own, okay? Here's what Jesus is saying. Catch this. If you make money your great pursuit, then you won't make your heavenly father your great pursuit. If you make your heavenly father your great pursuit, then you won't be so concerned about making money your great pursuit. But here's the promise. If we make the Heavenly Father our great pursuit, does not he promise to meet all our needs? Does he not promise that, church? Yeah. You see, the other thing is, Jesus is addressing his disciples, but I got to believe the Pharisees are still there listening. And, and here's the thing, the Pharisees absolutely believe that you could do Both. They believed that you could love God with all your heart and they believed that you could love money. In fact, they taught that. And so, another, another way to look at this is if you think that you can pursue God and pursue money at the same time, you're a Pharisee. Ugh, ah. Ugh. Your heart can't be ruled by God and by money. It will be ruled, though. Let me say that again your heart will be ruled. It's just not going to be ruled by two things at once. It's either going to be ruled by God or it's going to be ruled by money or it's going to be ruled by something else. John Calvin said this about this passage. He said, Where riches dominate the heart, where riches dominate the heart, God has lost his authority. Let me say that again. Where riches dominate the heart, God has lost his authority. I know it's hard to believe that we would sacrifice any devotion to the one who died for us, who, who went to a cross and, and gave it all for us. But money and possessions will quickly become a heart idol that, that we will sacrifice our devotion to our Savior for. Let me give you two things practically, what does this look like? Let me state this again in close. Kingdom investing doesn't mean that you ignore the needs of yourself and your family. (laughs) Kids, we, we can't buy deodorant this week. We have to give to the missionaries. It's going to be Kraft macaroni and cheese for the rest of the year, guys. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But it may mean that we make some different choices with how we spend money in our households. It may mean that but it doesn't mean that we ignore our own needs. There's a reason why God gave you wealth. He wants you to take care of your needs, but he also wants you to invest it. Maybe we need to redefine what needs are. But I do know this, that a kingdom mindset is not a hoarding, amassing mindset like the American mindset. The American mindset, if you figured this out, is what can I get and what can I keep? that's not a kingdom mindset. A kingdom mindset is this. It's not mine anyway. I'm just going to, who can I share this with? Who can I share this with? It's not mine. Who can I give this to? Who needs this more than I need it? Who, 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 how can I invest this in eternity? And it's not just bank accounts. Bank accounts are easy. Bank accounts are easy because we're Americans, and guess what? In the rest of the world, we're the rich ones. Do you know that? Bank accounts are easy. Where it gets hard for us is when it comes to time and our talent. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to do these things. Yeah, you do if you just reprioritize. Who knew that a snake of a manager could teach us so many things? Jesus did. That's why he told us this parable. Father, I think we can all think about somebody that we've known in our life who was a dishonest guy and who ripped people off, and maybe we've been ripped off by people like this guy. But Lord, I'm so thankful that Jesus in his wisdom used a dishonest guy to point out our own spiritual inadequacies and our own own wrong desires for wealth and money and our own misunderstandings of how we think our time is our own and it doesn't belong to you. Spirit, we began this time by asking you to convict our hearts, and I pray that you've done that. And now I pray that you wouldn't leave us alone until we reevaluate and we make some changes. That we would become much better spiritual, heavenly investors. This life is going to pass, it's going to go away. Our houses, our cars, our bank accounts, we're going to have to leave them all behind. And so I pray that we would view things from an eternal perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.